Yeah. And then I think the other hidden cost in all of this, which I think all of us have been through as sales managers, is the retention piece, right? Because if you're just incentivizing on quota and if you're missing talented people in that system, you know, it's half of their salary baked in cost to replace them between the recruiting and the ramping and the training. That is real. And especially in today's world, um, that is something we'd all like to avoid, right? We want to keep the good people and grow them as big and as fast as we can and give them the platform to succeed. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Sean Hatharamani. Sean is the CEO at FlockJ. And in our conversation today, Sean and I talk about FlockJ's recent change of mission, if you will, and their pivot into a focus on sales enablement. Now, we dig into the critical areas that Sean saw that he felt were holding back sales teams, holding back sales performance, which included sellers operating on their own little islands and not working collaboratively to either share their experiences about the strategies that are working for them or learning from the successes and failures of other sellers. So we dig into their sales elevation platform, how it enables sales teams to be more collaborative, creating a centralized resource for capturing best practices and winning strategies that can be leveraged by all sellers. In fact, one that perhaps motivates teams to be more proactive about implementing and adopting best practices across the organization. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Sean, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's jump into it with Sean. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you. So where are you joining us from? I am joining you, Andy, from the Bay Area. The Bay Area. So, um, yeah, I don't, people maybe who are listening can't see you, but but you're a new parent. So you're not that tired for a new parent. <laughs> <laughs> you're catching me at, a, at an outlier moment. But I think one of the things I've learned about new parenthood is it's a spiritual journey and you've just got to be along for the ride. So... Uh, we're hanging in there. We're lucky to have a very sweet and happy little boy. And um, it also just gives you lots of perspective on the things that give you energy and how you spend your time. Yeah. And it's, I found one of the more curious things about parents, especially with young, really young kids, was our first child, who was, as I mentioned before, is now my business partner and helped produce this podcast, um, was an easy baby. I mean, aside from some projectile vomiting, but, but learned to sleep through the night really easily, you know, very quickly. And yeah, <laughs> just as I said, sort of this easy kid. And you think, oh, as a parent, oh, we, we got to remember what we did because we're going to have another one. We'll do the right. exact same things. And what you find out is they come up differently <laughs> with their own personality. <laughs> and yeah, the second one was my daughter was nothing at all like my son. Um, so it's really sort of interesting that you learn very quickly about human nature. It's funny because I think, especially in today's world, there's this illusion of control. We all feel that if you just follow the playbook and follow the recipe and do the things that, you know, are working, that that is a repeatable and not to use too much business parlance, but a repeatable and scalable it's process. Not, but it's, it's not. Well, and that's interesting you bring that up because I, I, um, yeah, if you've read my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out, it's, it's all about, yeah. Yeah, taking control of how you sell and the way you sell is going to be unique to you. So the, the mission is how do you become the best version of yourself? And it's sort of yeah, true as parents, you know, you can't 
follow the playbook. You can't make your kids clones of each other. They're just different and they're going to have different unique paths, perhaps to the same end in life and happiness and fulfillment and so on. But yeah, there's not one playbook. One of the things I've appreciated the most. So my, you know, one of my lifetime passions is teaching and coaching and and mentorship. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find myself bringing into just this, you know, new phase of, of life of parenthood is this idea that prescriptive, um, coaching, parenting, whatever it is, is always uh, going to miss something big, which is the indi- individual, mm-hmm. right? like how they, how they move in the world. And um, too often there's this tendency for one size fits all kind of ways of teaching, of coaching, of nurturing. And as you mentioned in your book, yeah. um, everyone has a different learning style. Yep. Everyone's on their own path. Um, and I think one of the things that I've appreciated both in my professional and personal life is that um, if you're not tapping into that individual um, sparkle mm-hmm. that folks have, mm-hmm. then you're leaving so much on the table um, and it, it doesn't set anyone up for success. So well, um, lots of parallels and how that feeds back into you know the work that right. we both spend our time on and thinking about how do we unlock the potential of folks who are launching their careers in industries that are so conversant and tactile and applied like sales. Well, yeah, and you bring up a great point, which is that, and this is one that gets overlooked so often, this, you said, sort of this push to conformity and we're follow this playbook and everybody follows in lockstep, is that, yeah, people have their unique path. It takes a different amount of time for people. This is one of the big concerns I have about sales that I see with, you know, there's sort of rigid onboarding programs and so on, is that that's just going to take somebody longer to get it, right? And not everybody learns at the same rate as you talked about. And I feel like we we miss opportunities with people because we don't long we no longer sort of take the time to nurture and sort of look at sales right. as apprenticeship where not everybody's gonna develop at the same rate. We have to have the the patience for that. And it's the parallel to <laughs> to parenting is yeah, you you'll hear with your peers as your kids grow, and we certainly did with with ours and mine were growing up as like, oh, Johnny's not learning to read as fast as the kid next door. What's wrong with him? <laughs> right? And it's like, it's so wild. It's, um, it, I almost feel like you're back in high school or you're rushing a fraternity or a sorority because there's all this cross comparison that mm-hmm. starts to happen where you're always looking over your shoulder. It's like, are we doing this right? You know, someone had their kids sleep through the night at 12 weeks instead of 14 mm. weeks or whatever the, you know, whatever the thing is. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context on you know, me and my professional life. I mentioned that coaching and teaching has always been a lifelong right. passion. And I've spent over a decade teaching, whether informally on the side through nonprofit work and teaching financial literacy mm-hmm. um, in my first career and also in building FlockJ, the company right. I started where the mission has always been to um, unlock the potential in folks through education and access you know, we started out as an academy for job seekers from all kinds of backgrounds, right. hospitality, retail, et cetera. And in that process, we realized as we interfaced with the sales world, right, we were a sales academy and working with fast growing fortune, you know, 500 plus, mm-hmm. you know, public, private tech companies that um, we were learning so much about how to nurture and identify community driven and peer driven learning in our academy. And we were have been really proud about that approach. 
But then when you start one of these jobs, most of the time you're just given a phone, a Salesforce account, and a laptop, and you're just asked to go through the click and play, you know, LMS and onboarding, you know, right? watch the videos and everyone's trying to get to the end. And that's what we call training and enablement, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of scenarios. And then um, you get you get spit out the other end and it's like, OK, like what's the institutional knowledge? Hey, Andy, tap you on the shoulder. How do you do this? Mm-hmm. Right? How does that map to my style? Hey, Sean, how do you do this? And it's this you know, navigation of knowledge and resources and, and, and skills that often happens after the training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that Always was good. kind of the aha moment for us as a company. It was like, how do we take all of our learnings as a company from a pedagogy and a teaching perspective and a nurturing perspective and actually bring that into the fast paced environment of sales and build um, a way for sales leaders to unlock that potential that isn't just the click and play, watch a video, take a quiz kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So that represents for FlockJ sort of a big change of mission, right? Yeah. So in many ways, you know, it's a change of output, but the input, the mission is always the same. Okay. And the right. thought process there has been, okay, we can train folks in an academy and, you know, hundreds at a time, thousands at a time and make a small dent and get folks launched into this career. But if there's an overall endemic industry-wide moment to reevaluate and to up-level how we're training folks mm-hmm. in seat, what, what's the use of getting a, a handful of folks into a company if the whole system needs a reboot, right? right? And so from our perspective, it's a, con- it's a continuation of the mission in a way where we can deliver a really unique um, uh, impact, bringing our heritage of pedagogy and teaching and sales mm-hmm. um, to uplevel what set sales readiness looks like, right? Whether that's training, coaching, mentoring, and doing that in one place. So you're right. Making the shift from academy to software is huge. That is a pivot of, of pivots. And uh, it requires an entire sort of cultural and mental shift as a leader and also as a company. But we're serving the same folks. We're serving the graduates of our program and programs like ours, we're serving AEs and SDRs mm-hmm. and SEs and you know CS reps who are um, banging their head against the wall trying to figure out. Uh, you know, markets are changing so much faster than the stale training material and the handbook that they have in their um, in their drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we unlock that institutional knowledge, get it out of tools, get it out of places like Slack and call recordings mm-hmm. and get it in front of folks. So they're not reinventing the wheel and create an environment for continuous learning. So, yes, um, it's a big change for us in terms of our day to day. But the mission has always been clear in terms of what we're trying to do, which is to provide access to um, education and to help folks unlock their potential. So it sounds like from the platform, your sales elevation platform is really you're sort of facilitating people almost like creating an academy within the company, right? Exactly. So the way I would think about it is enablement in many ways can be broken into formal enablement, which is kind of the learning paths Mm -hmm. and courses and certifications that we're used to. And then it's the real stuff. It's the informal enablement. It's the peer coaching. It's the knowledge sharing. It's the pro tips. It's the how did someone actually do that and how can I practice and get some feedback from my manager? Mm -hmm. And if you can do that in a place and actually capture those kernels of knowledge and use them to build more relevant training faster, 
um, then in many ways you are building that academy internally and we're providing the rails to do that. And so our platform allows companies to capture structure and surface the winning knowledge within its walls and then use that to scale best practices and understand how they win and why they win. Okay. Yeah. I'm just thinking a lot to unpack there. So, you know, is it a potential danger point though, is when you say, you know, company surface best practices that it sort of falls prey to then falling into the, <laughs> the conformity, you know, rigid process playbook that we should follow and sort of, you know, the more you formalize it, perhaps the less useful it becomes to, to sellers. I think that's a really good point. And one of the things we've noticed even before launching our platform is this rigidity, this structure, this idea of the endless document and the script that we all get that we're supposed to follow. And one of the things that we learned as an academy is people learn differently, people sell differently, mm-hmm. and people map the way they succeed based on different folks, even within the organization. Sure. And so what FlockJ allows you to do is, let's say you, Andy, you hop on and you share a snippet from a recording and you share how you handled an objection, you know, from Mm -hmm. a potential prospect. That might be a totally different way of handling it than the way I did. And FlockJ allows anyone in the company to be able to get a glimpse of that, to learn from Andy, the teacher, and say, hey, I'm going to sample a little bit of Andy and a little bit of Sean because that fits who I am. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to samples, you know, someone from Paul. So there's this idea where people are able to have more visibility and transparency into winning knowledge and winning strategies without having to conform to this is the way. Mm-hmm. And, and the important thing there on the other side is to give managers and leadership a way to be like, hey, like we want to facilitate that knowledge sharing, but also here's some examples of what good looks like. I'm going to create a collection of the best objection handling that we've done this month It'll be a little bit of Andy, a little bit of Sean, a little bit of Paul, a little bit of Sally. Um, and that will give my team enough context to see what good looks like in different ways. Yeah. And our current systems aren't designed for that kind of flexibility, especially in this hybrid, you know, remote world that we're living in where we have lost a lot of that sales floor. Mm-hmm. And also in this world where, as I mentioned, markets are changing so much faster than training material that the amount of knowledge and the amount of skills that you need, anything you learned three months ago, maybe a quarter of it is stale today, right? So you've got to keep Potentially, yeah. uh, facilitating this uh, practice that enablement isn't just owned by the enablement leader. Enablement is owned all the way up and down the chain um, to the manager, to the actual rep themselves. I mean, you used two interesting words a little while ago that you know, want to dig into because I think they're words that are <laughs> really valuable and important but are overlooked. One is how, the other is why, related to winning. And this is something I really spend a lot of time thinking about is, is and I talk about it in the book as well, is, is I don't think that sellers, for the most part, are really understand how they sell. You know, if you had to ask somebody, Tell me how you sell, right? And what you do that is successful. I'd say most to draw pretty much a blank. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's such a great the profession. Well, I was going to say, I think it's just it's, this opportunity for you know, people, if you can become intentional about 
the steps you're taking and understanding what works and how it works and why it works, a big step forward. And we have a hard time seeming filtering that information back into the the whole self-improvement cycle. It's a huge moment and opportunity for this industry. It's the most obvious thing in the world when we say it, right? But if you think about and zoom out why that's the case, why do most folks in the seat in sales not have an answer to that question of like, how did you actually close that deal? Is that we actually don't, as an industry, incentivize introspection or learning or continuous improvement very well at all. No, oh, amen. Right? And, and you move what you measure. And most of what we're measuring is a glorified scoreboard. Mm-hmm. It's you know, activity right down yep. to closed one. Yep. And that's how you're compensated and that's how you get leadership positions and that's what perpetuates the cycle. And, you know, that works in an Excel spreadsheet. And I come from the finance world, so I appreciate the capacity levers of a sales team and driving ramp time and productivity and retention and you want those things moving. But when you're short-term optimizing for just trying to get those dials to work in the spreadsheet, you lose the fact that any given day, anyone in this seat should be carving some time for introspection, mm-hmm. for understanding what worked well in that call and what could have gone better. And those are the moments that make you 10, 15% better every week, every month. And until we as an industry start to incentivize and motivate and reward behavior that not only rewards someone for beating quota, but also rewards them for passing the ladder back and making the team better or learning about the role ahead and thinking about how you can keep growing, then we're missing a huge opportunity. And I think the most forward thinking enablement leaders and sales leaders today are necessarily thinking about this now, because especially in changing markets, we all are trying to do less with more, do more with less. Right. Um, I, yeah. I wish it was less with more. But, <laughs> We've been uh, less with more for a long time. Less. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and I think it's this is this is it. Like this is the biggest thing in front of us that we could be you know thinking about. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit. So, how would you incentivize people to learn? It's a great question. It starts culturally. It starts at the frontline manager level. It starts at the leadership level. It starts by rewarding and acknowledging and creating rituals within teams where it can be as simple as, you know, a Tuesday coaching roundup or a game film session, Mm -hmm. the things that we're doing, but starting to actually be intentional about those. Um, I talk to a lot of sales managers where they'll have a meeting like this and everyone will learn something in that meeting and everyone will walk out the door and none of those learnings will actually then be reflected back Mm -hmm. in practice, right? Because you just, you lose it. I think there's actual research that says you lose 50% of what you learn within the first, you know, day or so of learning it. Yeah, the and so if they're, forgetting curve, yeah. Yes, exactly, the forgetting curve. And, and so if there isn't this spaced repetition where you're actually chronicling and capturing and rewarding and practicing that behavior, uh, you don't need, you know, a software platform to do it. It helps you do that, but you, anyone can start as a manager by chronicling the things that are working, rewarding that behavior and creating a culture of collaboration. I think that is table stakes. And some of the best sales teams I've had, you walk into either the physical office or you look at their Slack and they're constantly sharing 
what's not working, what's working. They're normalizing that vulnerability of um, continuously trying to get better, right? Right. And, and, and also normalizing failure. So that's the first step in moving, I think, the needle on what we're talking about. Well, let's talk about incentivizing it, though, because I mean, we—I <laughs> think that that's that's a critical part. Is doesn't have to be part of someone's compensation to improve. I've had this conversation with sales leaders, and my perspective on it is: you can get the commission check for hitting quota or beating quota, but to get the equity, to get the title, to get the leadership position, that's table stakes. There's got to be more, and so in that. QBR or in that review, when you're up for promotion, it's on us as an industry, as leadership, as managers to actually monetarily reward that behavior and codify that. And I've seen teams do that to enormously successful ends. And I think we're so early in that. And you can hear and see rumblings of this um, on any sales team you talk to because it's the lone wolf right? Complex where if I'm not incentivized to share my secret sauce, right. then why am I going to do it? Um, but if it's made clear to me that my future, not only at this company, but at other companies, right? Given sales can be such a transient career, you know, the average tenure of a rep, probably no more than two or three years in a given place, right? Oh, Especially less, this, less than that now. Less than that, right? yeah, I just saw, just saw a data point. Somebody said that uh, I think in sales, by the time you're 48, you'll have had 12 jobs on average now. <laughs> I think I'm anxious just thinking about that. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's about every two years, right? Right, exactly. And um, historically, altruism hasn't really been rewarded, right, because of the in incentive structure. Mm. But if you're able to actually have the receipts, so to speak, when you come up for your compensation promotion review and say, hey, Han Andy, you're my manager. Uh, on FlockJ, I've actually had this tangible impact. You know, 30% of my team has marked the content that I've shared with my team as beneficial and helpful to their sales process, if not more. That's huge. Um, so I think it starts by having a conversation uh, at the leadership level around duration and how you're thinking about the next generation of leaders within your company. If you want good people to stay, it's not just going to be for lone wolf economics. It's going to be for folks who are recognized for being far more than that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I thought just crossed my mind as you're giving the examples is, hey, you know, 30% of his content he shared was useful or something. It's like, yeah, but does get reflected in results? Right. Right. I mean, it's like, sure, we all found that useful, but we're all still only <laughs> operating at a 20% win rate. Uh, how valuable really is it? And that's that's the golden goose. How do you close the loop and start to see the ripple effect from these kind of changes culturally into you know win rates, quota attainment, all those kinds of things? Yeah, I, I wonder. I think the part of the answer, I think, and I've talked about this on the show with other guests before, is that you have to move away from quota and look yes. at attainment more as as a basis of productivity so for me in sales if we really want to make this happen and say look and you're still there we can calculate number of actual selling hours you spend you know bringing a deal from initial point of interest to a close let's say that's going to yield a certain you know revenue per hour of selling time that you generate 
And if you're measuring people on the surf that basis, which is, as I said, <laughs> can be done, is then you start incentivizing people on improvement, percentage of improvement in their productivity. Then you build in an incentive for people to learn, right? Because if my compensation is based on improving my base productivity and assuming I'm still selling at that productivity level of, at a you know, minimum number of hours in a year, yeah, I'm going to sell a certain amount. But the incentive then would say, well, no. You know, if your productivity was, let's say, $1,000 per hour of selling time, next year it needs to be 1050 So what are you going to do in order to improve your productivity as well? You have to learn, right? You have to say, well, what works? Why does it work? How does it work? Who can I learn from? Totally. And I think it is um, something I talk about a lot with um, leaders who we work with are the controllables and the non-controllables. And I think quota often gets lumped into the way of assessing individual performance because it's much easier to lump the controllables and non-controllables together mm. and just sort of push it downstream. It's like, oh, it's, it's you. And it could be any number of things. It could be the product. It could be the market. It could be the motion. It could be email mm. deliverability, right? Mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> and, um, and I think the things you can control is how much time are you spending reinventing the wheel? How much time are you um, spending on navigating panes of glass on your monitor and not actually on the phone talking to customers, right? And that's the stuff that you can incentivize, you can reward. And it's amazing, um, and I encourage every leader to do this, is to actually be an SDR for a couple days, is to see how many tabs someone has open mm -hmm. um, and, and go through that workflow, right? Um, or even an AE. Those are the controllables that you can start to improve from a productivity, from a uh, impact perspective. Um, and you're right. I think that is, it's much harder to have a conversation and say, um, your productivity went from A to B um, versus, uh, it's much easier to have that conversation than, than to say, uh, you didn't hit quota, right? That's just a catch-all to me. And there's so many yeah. things to unpack there. Well, I've managed teams using that productivity as the basis. And you suddenly have all this information that you didn't have before in terms of, well, what are the levers I can manipulate here to, to affect a change? And, you know, you could have two sellers, let's say, that if you're really looking at, okay, how much revenue are they generating per actual hour of selling time? And it's, it would require sellers to sort of track time like consultants do. right. Which they should, right? We want to be consultants to our, our buyers, right? So we should be tracking. If we want to really learn how effective our sellers are in front of buyers, the only way to really track that is time. <laughs> and, and if you want to see how effective sellers are collaborating internally to bring the resources to bear on accounts, the same thing is you got to track time. And right. as long as we're so focused on quota, I think we're always going to have this issue. That's why... For me, the, the way forward really is to focus on this level of productivity. You then build into it because if you incent people on improvement in productivity, their incentive to learn goes up. The one, one of the risks I'll highlight, and I sure. think it's the, the right high-level approach, one of the risks I'll highlight, and I've seen this happen, is um, in the quest to track productivity, we lose the forest from the trees and we start tracking every single sort of like activity level thing we can track in Salesforce. 
And this comes back to the individual and how they sell. If you zoom out, what is important is number of dollars generated per Our week or month or what have you, right? Yeah. Keep it really simple. How you get there may Absolutely. look a little different, right? Some folks may be really good at choosing accounts and focusing a lot more on fewer accounts. Some folks may be really good at follow-up and high velocity. Exactly. And I think that's the piece that um, a first time or a newer manager might miss where they may come to you and you say, Hey, Andy, you're actually not making X many dials, you know, as Sean is, you're off the mark in productivity, but really Andy's got, he's playing chess while, you know, his manager's playing checkers and there's a different way of getting there. And at the end well, of the month, you know, well, so we just have to stop people in sales calling 50 dials a day productivity. It's right, active, exactly. activity. It's not productivity. Productivity exactly. is a rate of output per unit of input, in which case that's, you know, the, for me, it's the rate of revenue generated per hour of a selling time. Right. And we have the technology. We can do that today as, as every activity could be tracked to a specific account opportunity. Um, longer conversation for a different time, but it's, to me, this is the path forward because as long as we're really fixated on quota, you know, quota is a self-limiting thing, right? I mean, you're familiar with Goodhart's law and mm -hmm. said, look, when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. That's what quota yep. is because people optimize their processes to achieve quota. Well, who's to say that's optimal productivity. That's just a number we put in the ground. Right. Right. And it's ultimately self-defeating. Right. And it creates all kinds of negative feedback cycles too, in terms of incentives and collaboration and folks actually Absolutely. being able to succeed as a team. Well, and to your point earlier about, you know, we have to really focus on people's individuals and what's, what's going to work for them. They have different ways of operating. Compensation may have to be more granular, the plans that we put together for individuals. Yeah. And then I think the other hidden cost in all of this, which I think all of us have been through as sales managers is the retention piece, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're just incentivizing on quota, and if you're missing talented people in that system, you know, it's half of their salary and baked in cost to replace them between the recruiting and the ramping and the training. That is real. And yeah. especially in today's world, um, that is something we'd all like to avoid, right? We want to keep the good people and grow them as big and as fast as we can and give them the platform to succeed. Yeah, I just wonder, though, in sales, and I, this is sort of, again, one of these big questions is, can anybody really have an, an impact on that in terms of the rate of change of sellers, you know, changing jobs every two years? Is that, is the cat out of the bag on that horse out of the barn, whatever analogy you want to use metaphor we want to use this is, I don't, I wonder whether there's any sort of coming back from that or whether we just have to resign ourselves to the fact that, you know, we're going to hire salespeople and they are you know, temporary assets. It's a good question. I think this also comes back to controllables and uncontrollables. Uh, and I don't, I don't think there's going to be any reversion, nor should there be, to this idea that we are company men and company women, right? That there's this like, right. lifelong fealty to IBM. And this is not picking IBM. It's just, you know, a generational no, good example. Yeah. Uh, right. Example. Um, but what we can do is invest heavily in our onboarding systems, our continuous learning systems, our paths for promotion, and do everything we can to say, hey, 
a career here allows you to unlock most of what you'd like to do if you keep at it. And we're going to we're going to accept the fact that um, the nature of this job is itinerant. Right. We're going to lose some people. But it comes back to um, just zooming out and saying, are we doing everything we can control to keep folks here and have them be uh, excited to keep growing here? And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And that's okay. I don't think there should be this false sense of reality um, that we should try to hold on to everyone. But I think we should do everything we can control and invest in the systems. And, And some of what I think we do sometimes is to your point, we try to optimize for a metric. Let's say it's retention and we'll do all these things to try to drive retention, but really retention is the output of good things. It's not the input that you're trying to optimize. Mm. It's, you know, what you're doing to create an environment where your team wins and people win. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, that (laughs) if you really want to focus on retention, yeah, and just use an example. And again, I don't know how you deal with this on your platform, but it's it certainly seemed like an opportunity. Is big believer that yeah, you know, one of the primary reasons that sellers leave a position is hey, I'm not learning, I'm not growing with my manager anymore, right? Not learning anything from the person I'm working for. So I'm sort of open to opportunities. Is I think the opportunity is how do we do a better job of enabling our frontline managers? who are in very tough, tough jobs, right? They get, they barely learn how to sell and they get promoted into a job where they're responsible for other people. And there's some assumption that's baked into holding the title that you actually sort of know what you're doing. Right. <laughs> and which isn't the case, right? And it's largely the case throughout the sales hierarchy as people get bumped up and the, the expectations, they know what they're doing and they really don't. Is, it seems like I have to have a fundamental rethinking of how we enable certainly frontline managers and the entire management chain in sales. Because yeah. and I think there's, there's also a, a kind of a paradigm shift in not only enabling those managers, which I think managers are some of the least enabled folks within a company for all the reasons you mentioned, right. but also a bit of a paradigm shift in going from a place where we expect managers to have all the answers to all the problems on their team mm-hmm. to managers being able to traffic light direct to the right answers, right? Because most of the time the answer lies within the team. That person who's highly motivated who's at risk of leaving is probably the one who's figured something out and isn't growing and learning anymore. And you're right, FlockJ does create an environment where managers don't have to be the source of truth all the time and trying Mm -hmm. to one-on-one be prescriptively providing all the answers, but they can identify, elevate, and shine a light on those folks who would otherwise be a churn risk to the company. And on a platform like FlockJ, actually give them visibility to a VP or EVP and say, hey, actually, Andy's way of doing this, as he recorded it in this call in this email, was amazing. And I want to pin it to FlockJ's feed, and I want others to engage on that and see how great this was. Because that internal visibility and that opportunity for Andy to then start learning from the person ahead of him is that much more powerful versus just twiddling your thumbs and sort of resigning yourself to the fact that you have to look for another job because um, Sean as your manager just, you know, uh, isn't cutting it. Right. (laughs) I'm sure Sean's doing a great job. Um, I think he's a mediocre manager. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I, there's studies, you've probably seen them said that, you know, the, 
biggest impact on you know, individual seller's success is their immediate manager and the yeah. coaching they get from them. And yeah, who's teaching frontline managers how to really be effective coaches? Yeah. And it's not because I think it's the point comment you made before is, is yeah, I think managers set themselves up oftentimes as being the source of answers and they really just need to be the source of questions, right? Yes. And the sellers have to have the answers and learn how to come up with the answers um, and with the guidance of the, the managers. But that part just seems to be missing. And I think from a retention standpoint, yeah, sort of, you know, give a sort of hyperbolic example is saying, well, hey, if, if the $15 billion a year we spend on sales training in the United States, we spend, let's say, 90% of it, and I don't know what the exact number is. I'm assuming it's 90% at least on enabling sellers. Let's flip the, let's flip it. Let's spend 90% on enabling management and 10% on sellers. And what do we think the results would be? I think that's the benefit of leverage and scale, right? Because if you're enabling managers, you're hopefully enabling the seven or eight folks exactly. under that, right? Exactly. I think the payback would be immediate. Immediate. <laughs> I think we spend too much. Now oh, people are gonna hate me when I say this. Too much on sales training. Spend more on enabling managers. We train people, quote unquote, train people to death, to some degree. Is you know incremental investment in additional sales training is probably less valuable than putting that into enabling managers. And I'll take it a step further. I think there's also a paradigm shift that is beginning that should probably accelerate in, in terms of how we think about the role of enablement, enablement leaders within mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's no secret that there's a trust gap sometimes between what enablement's putting out and what the rep is doing on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of right. actually being close to the selling, right? Well, that's, and, that's been the case for Eternity, but yeah. Eternity, right? Yes. And I think it's it's only gotten worse given the speed of, of all the things we've talked about, knowledge and skills. And by the mm -hmm. time you create some content and enablement, it's you know virtually stale and it's overproduced and it's a lose-lose. It sets everyone up for failure. And the paradigm shift I'm referring to is, and I'm starting to hear this from some of the most mission-driven and forward-thinking enablement leaders I've, I've worked with, is becoming less of you know, the owner of enablement at a company and more the facilitator, identifying subject matter experts within mm -hmm. individual teams and departments and working with them to enable and empower them, you know, at the manager level to be those enablement leads, as opposed to just a linear, I'm going to push all this content down to you, you're going to consume it, and then I'm going to track the the metrics on it. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that feeds into what we're talking about, but that is a paradigm shift for what the role of an enablement team is, because it isn't just creating content. It is identifying, nurturing, and, and, and empowering folks to be subject matter experts. And something I've just experienced personally is it's an entirely different skill set to teach, um, an entirely yeah. different skill set to structure those thoughts. And we started this conversation with a self-awareness around how and why you win enablement can play a vital role in helping folks understand that so they can be better communicators. Yeah. Well, I think that <laughs> it, I think you'd have a broader definition of it, which I think is something when you're talking about rethinking the paradigm is, is one I like to bring up is you watch the show or watch the show billions. I have watched it before. Okay. So who's the most valuable employee on the, the floor in that firm? In my mind, it's Wendy. Yep. 
the, right? the coach, the mental yeah. health coach, the mental health yeah. coach. Why isn't that part of enablement? Why aren't we saying, look, we're trying to enable our sellers who are in this incredibly stressful profession who are probably under supported or feel under supported by management. We know from, you know, uncrushed and other surveys that have come out recently, the high fraction of, of sellers feel perhaps even clinical levels of stress and anxiety. Why isn't that part of enablement? Why aren't we yeah. advising them to roll enable and say, look, is part of enablement is we're going to have mental health professionals available to sellers in real time. Or instead of saying, look, we're not going to enable uh, our frontline managers to be coaches, then hire coaches, hire people whose job, they're professional coaches. They know how to coach. You know, there's all this people with specialized knowledge. And I draw the analogy to soccer, my, my passion outside of work, is when you look how the, the coaching staffs they've built in professional soccer teams are these highly specialized individuals that you know, have specific skill sets that you don't expect the, the top person to have all that knowledge. So let's get really specialized in the people we bring into an organization. And you always get pushback. It's like I had this sort of discussion with a, a client when I was presenting to a sales leadership team. It's like, well, okay. I mean, how many sellers do you need to have on a team with all the lost days and everything in order to justify the cost of a mental health professional on staff? I guarantee it's not very much. Yeah. What do you think that number is? I'm curious. I don't know. I haven't done the, sat down and done the math, yeah. but I mean, there's the statistics, uh, you know, Jeff Risley at the sales health Alliance has published in terms of the number of lost days based on mental health issues in sales. And it's, it's very significant. Yeah. I would argue that number is much smaller than we all think. Um, and the stakes are even higher, the smaller you go in many ways. You know, you have fixed costs and all that, that kind of stuff, but your business guts. Yeah, the number is small in terms of the number of people you need to be able to justify that expense, you mean? Right, right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But it's just one example is yeah. in terms of rethinking the paradigm. Why isn't that part of enablement? I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's um, institutional inertia. I think it's the spreadsheet. I think old it's... School, exactly, old school thinking. It's, it's all those things, right? Because the business is you're building the plane as you're flying it and to even consider something like this requires someone to be thinking three or four steps ahead and we're in an industry you're just looking month to month and that's that's the opportunity that's the right. the, the, the role of, of platforms like FlockJ to start the conversation and change the and evolve the thinking um, right. around how we enable folks not just at the rep level, but the manager level, at the enablement level, and to bridge that gap um, across all those parties. Very good. All right, well, Sean, this has been so much fun. Thanks for joining me. Likewise. Thank you, Andy. It's been a blast. And as you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this. Uh, oh, me too. So we'll have to do this again. <laughs> so we'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Uh, so if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Flockj.com. Uh, it's the best way to check out what we're up to, what we're building. Sean at Flockj.com. I love um, coaching and supporting mission-driven sales leaders who are looking to build best-in-class organizations. Perfect. All right, Sean. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Sean Hathoramani, for sharing his insights with us today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for that, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.